Welcome to the Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast, where we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy, plus you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so use your time effectively by listening, learning, and claiming credit. It's a new way to learn. Just log on to CEimpact.com for more information on podcasts. Hello and welcome again to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. How you doing? I hope uh, wherever you are listening from, you're having a good week. Things are going okay for you. Um, certainly, if you're in the U.S. listening, I hope uh, you're, you're finding as we are in Iowa that uh, we're, I think, finally climbing out of the hole that is COVID. And uh, um, I hope that's all I have to say about COVID for a while, to be honest with you. So uh, again, thanks for listening. Um, um, you know, if this is your first time, uh, welcome. If you've been here many times before, welcome as well. Uh, if either a case, please be sure to uh, to like and, and and subscribe to us at anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, and tell your friends, tell, tell your family, uh, tell anyone who'd be interested in listening, if, if, if they're interested in hearing stuff about pharmacotherapy and the latest in evidence-based medicine. And that's what we try to deliver here at Game Changers. And uh, you can get all of that through us in, in a simple, uh, uh, easy to hear uh, and easy to digest 20 minute uh, podcast. Also, uh, if you're uh, a pharmacist and you want some CE, please head over to CE Impact uh, and uh, sign up for our program. Um, um, it helps us keep the lights on, which is always good. But also you get the CE for listening to us, which is pretty good. And some good news. We are now also accredited for CME. Um, and so uh, please head over again to CE Impact if you you are a physician, and uh, if and, and you're interested in getting some CME for listening to me blather on for 20 minutes. So again, both pharmacists and and prescribers are now are now eligible for for CE through listening to uh, to Game Changers. So that's terrific. Today we are going to talk about yay nothing COVID. We're actually going to talk about one of a number of, of pretty big studies that was recently announced at uh, the American College of Cardiology meeting that just went on uh, came on the last couple of weeks here, and uh, this is one that's definitely I think of, of high importance to many primary care providers. And it was the adaptable study. So this study was finally kind of designed to answer once and for all in a prospective controlled setting what dose of aspirin is the best dose. And I don't know about you, I'm an old man pharmacist, so I've seen doses kind of all over the place. Um, um, used for 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 uh, prevention of coronary disease, for treatment of coronary disease, for treatment of stroke, and, and prevention of stroke, and all sorts of stuff like that. And for a long time, you know, especially when when I was first practicing in the '90s and early aughts, there you know there really wasn't a ton of data that said that one dose was better than another. It was always tough because in Europe they have a wide variety of different types of doses of aspirin that we don't have in the United States. So you know, you'd read a European study about a dose of aspirin, like, well, you know, how am I gonna how am I gonna make that up here? Even if I were to find a better benefit. And really, we just we kind of went back and forth. And then in the mid-2000s, a couple of, of, of post-hoc analyses of some studies kind of, I think, pointed the way of, of certainly what I have been recommending up to this point, which is uh, that uh, baby aspirin is really the way to go for chronic treatment of, of, of patients and long-term treatment. And that higher doses of, of, of aspirin, the 325 of aspirin, really didn't get you much except side effects. And in particular, a post-hoc analysis of the CURE study, which was one of the first studies that looked at the combination of aspirin and Plavix and cardiovascular disease, they did a 
postdoc analysis of, of, of that study in the patients who had who were receiving high versus low dose aspirin. And they, again, they found no benefit of the high dose aspirin and all they found was, was, was increased bleeds. But again, that's a post hoc analysis. And there had always been some concern about, about you know, the right dose. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a small study that suggested that, that obese patients may actually need a higher dose. So there, the question just hadn't been answered. And so uh, 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 this study, the adaptable study, I think is a very timely study and, and really one of the should be the one of the final nails in this coffin or of this question of gee you know what dose should we really pick it was an open label pragmatic randomized control trial so again an rct and again the, the the point of the study was was to determine whether a high dose aspirin of 325 a day would result in a lower risk of death from any cause hospitalization from mi or hospitalization from stroke among patients with established atherosclerotic uh, cardiovascular disease compared to a strategy of just 81 milligrams a day so i you know very well done pragmatic trial uh, it is worth noting that this is the first of what I suspect will be many studies uh, to be published using the PCORnet. Uh, the PCORnet is, is the National Patient-Centered Clinical Research Network, and you can actually uh, go to their website, and, and we can probably uh, put a link to that to that website uh, in the show notes. And uh, this is what's being called a network of networks. Uh, one of the one of the issues. One of the issues we have in American healthcare is is that uh, unlike other countries that have basically one uh, generalized healthcare system, we sometimes have a difficult time uh, bringing a lot of data together, uh, uh, either prospectively or retrospectively, to do uh, to do uh, a real world type studies. And so we have to kind of in the United States have to kind of depend on insurance databases and things like that. The PCORnet, I think, is, is in a way is a way to try and make a more robust, enriched. Uh, network. And so basically, again, it's this network of network of, of wide variety of, of, of individual healthcare systems across the country who've, who've pledged to bring their data together, also uh, uh, help patients in these uh, different health systems be enrolled all across the country in clinical trials. So you can not only do, you know, pragmatic clinical trials like this, but you have this, again, this gigantic database that you can now do probably better real world evidence studies and things along those lines. And that those kind of studies are critical important because, as you might have guessed, you know, we have a lot of questions about if drug A is better than drug B for something. Well, the problem is that, uh, that those, those studies are a lot unlikely to be uh, funded by drug companies who don't want to be on the losing end of that proposition, right? And so because of that, uh, we, we, we often lack comparative effectiveness studies for drugs. And uh, the PCORnet is a way to, get a, uh, to, to, to do that research uh, without having to be funded by, by a pharmaceutical company. So I think that, that's actually pretty good. So, so back to the adaptable study, the inclusion criteria for the study. This is patients who, again, had known atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. How is that defined? They either had to have a history of a prior MI, they had to have a history of coronary angiography that showed at least 75% stenosis of one artery, or they had to have had a history of, of, of a cardiovascular, of a coronary revascularization procedure. So they either had PCI or cabbage. They had to be adults, obviously. Uh, they could not have uh, um, any significant side effects like allergy to aspirin, as you might imagine, that would be a, be a, a problem. A history of, of GI bleed in the last 12 months, um, any other significant bleeding disorders or being on anticoagulants that would increase the risk of bleeding while being on aspirin. 
aspirin and and those are kind of the big ones so again a pragmatic study because they they wanted to have a, a large inclusion and exclusion criteria uh, at that point they were then randomly assigned in a patient portal uh, to either again the low dose 81 milligram aspirin or 325 of aspirin um, and uh, they purchased actually the assigned dose over the counter so the their drug was not given to the patients by the study investigators they were actually uh, received they received 25 dollars remuneration for trial participation and then agreed to be in the low versus high dose um, they uh, because this is a pragmatic design uh, they were then also randomized into follow-up visits in their network again and that's one of the advantages of this PCOR network uh, system is that they didn't have you know you you had a central place but you didn't have to have investigators literally all over the country they just had to be in their own local network and that data would get uploaded in into the PCOR net for the investigators of the study to use basically so it's, it's actually pretty pretty interesting and so in this they they uh, were either they either did a online internet uh, uh, portal sort of a view or a telephone phone a telephone call for follow-up basically so there was actually no in-person uh, visits uh, during follow-up they were uh, they were done either three to six months depending uh, either on internet uh, uh, portals or phone calls basically so kind of interesting as well the primary uh, uh, FF, uh, effectiveness outcome was time to first occurrence of any event of a composite from death of any cause hospitalization for mitocardial infarction or hospitalization for stroke. And so like many other cardi uh, cardiovascular studies, they, they did a, a composite outcome and that's, that's actually, that's, pretty much common and, and is normal and then and, and and something you're going to see almost in every big cardiovascular study because that helps them decrease the number of patients they're going to need to see a difference if one actually exists uh, there was numerous second secondary outcomes including the individual outcomes of each one of the ones we just talked about as well as things like the need for coronary vascularization they also wanted to look at safety, and the primary safety outcome was it was an interesting uh, 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 outcome. They looked at major bleeding, and they defined that as as major bleeding with an associated blood product transfusion. So, if you had bleeding bad enough that you required an associated blood product transfusion, um, that was counted as 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 a major bleed as as the safety outcome. I'll I'll explain why that's good and maybe not so good here in just a second. Uh, as far as statistics are concerned, uh, the statistics from my to my eye look fairly normal. Normal. Uh, um, uh, I think these pragmatic studies do tend to, to use a little more complex statistics. Uh, they knew they were going to need about 15,000 patients to show a difference in this primary outcome if one existed. That was the target. Uh, they used uh, a, 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 a test I had actually not heard of uh, called the Kalfeish and Prentice's non-parametric estimator of cumulative incidence function. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I had to look it up myself, uh, but I was much more heartened when I note that they used the Cox proportional hazards to do their their Kaplan markers, which is something I'm much more familiar with. So, so statistics seemed on the whole, um, you know, on par with what we were looking for. And again, they needed 15,000 patients to, to, to show a difference of one existed. So what they found, and if they got those patients is what we're going to talk about. But first, a, a message from uh, CE Impact. Do you love Game Changers? We would love if you, our dedicated listeners, would share your feedback on your experience of listening to Game Changers every week. Check out the link in the show notes to share your feedback. So in the adaptable study, 15,000 patients, they actually met their target very nicely. They actually had 15,076 patients, so just over what they needed, that were enrolled and underwent randomization, about 7,500 to the 81 milligram group and about 7,500 to the 325 milligram group. Looking to the baseline characteristics, it's worth noting that almost everybody in the study had been taking aspirin before, and almost everybody in the study had been taking a baby aspirin before. So that is worth noting that these weren't, uh, if, if you want to call it aspirin-naive patients. Most of these patients 
medications that had, had a history of, of taking baby aspirin. Uh, about 22% of them were on a P2Y drug, mostly Plavix, as you might imagine. Mean age was 67. 30% of the population was female, and about 80% uh, were white. Almost all of these patients had a history of MI or PCI. So uh, um, uh, very small percentage of patients uh, had a had a cath, but no intervention. So basically, we knew these patients had had uh, had was was going to be a secondary uh, uh, um, study because uh, all these nearly all these patients had an MI history or, or had a history of PCI prior to enrollment. They one thing I was a bit shy, a bit uh, surprised about is they didn't talk much about other medications uh, in the groups uh, that might and decrease the, the primary outcome, in particular statins. So like I looked through the, the supplemental stuff and they don't really discuss, you know, the statin percentage in patients at all. You think that would have been a very easy question to ask uh, that might might play a role, obviously, in the outcome. So we, we don't know about other medications such as beta blockers or statins that these patients uh, probably should have been on. So as far as the outcome, death from any cause, hospitalization for myocardial infarction or stroke occurred in 7.28% uh, 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 of patients in the 81 milligram group and 7.51% of patients in the 325 milligram group. And even with 15,000 patients, that was not statistically significant. So there was uh, no statistically significant difference in the primary outcome between baby aspirin and full dose aspirin. Um, and then when they went through and looked at each of the individual uh, components of, of, of that primary outcome, as well as the secondary outcomes, there was no difference in any secondary outcome between them at all. Then we get to bleeding because I think I think most people I knew didn't think that that 325 was necessarily going to be more effective, but was it going to be more dangerous? And that surprised a lot of people. I think in the study when they actually found that that there was no actual difference in in the sec in secondary outcome of bleeding. So the so bleeding percentages were exactly almost exactly the same between the the 81 milligram and the uh, um, uh, 325 milligram group. But it is interesting to note that during the trial, 41 uh, percent of patients in the 325 arm ended up switching to the 81 milligram arm. And so I suspect that, that if there was a signal for bleeding that was probably lost as, as uh, almost half the patients in the, in, in the 325 arm went to the 81 milligram arm. And again, that's, that, that was, I think, something we were really concerned about would, would, would be bleeding, I think, more than efficacy with this. So, uh, you know, I'm not entirely convinced that, that this study shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that 325 milligrams is safer than 81 milligrams. Um, but, but I think what you can, what, 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 uh, or is as safe, excuse me, than 81 milligrams. But I think you can say, you know, that the study didn't, certainly didn't find a difference um, and if there's no difference at a minimum, why would you pick the higher dose? And so, I mean, you know, if, if, even if you take the, 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 the data on this really kind of just, you know, on, on its face value, if you have 325 versus 81 milligrams and there's literally no difference between the two, why not just take the 81 milligrams? Just, I think that's just kind of common sense. So, but the, the, it is worth noting that again, 41% uh, of patients did, did, uh, did switch in the, in the trial from the, from the high dose to the low dose where a much smaller percentage went the other way. Um, the other interesting piece is, is I, and having to kind of go back to it, is the secondary outcome of, of, of bleeding that required transfusion or required blood products. Remember that not all major bleeds do get blood products. And the, the thing I'm particularly thinking of here is, is head bleeds. Um, um, so if somebody had an intracranial hemorrhage, uh, people with intracranial hemorrhages usually don't have very low hemoglobin. So we don't usually transfuse them uh, to pack red blood cells. Now we do often give them platelets and that, that, that would be counted 
treated as as a blood product. But I think I think it, it's 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 worth noting that that it is certainly possible that critical bleeds like head bleeds may not have gotten counted in this study because in some cases we just don't give blood products to people who have head bleeds because either we feel like the that that the blood products they're they're far enough out that the, pl the platelets aren't going to do anything, um, or their hemoglobin isn't low, so we don't give them packed red blood cells. So uh, it, it is certainly possible if if that was 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 how they looked at things in the study we, we, that they may have missed a, a major a, a small number or maybe even not so small number of, of major bleeds in particular, like I said, intracranial hemorrhage, um, also ocular hemorrhages. We often um, don't don't give blood products for. So it is possible we miss some of those. So you know, again, taking it on face value, you could say, okay, there's no difference. But I think there's there's enough of a question that that if there's certainly no difference in efficacy, why not just pick the 81 milligram? So the authors of the study basically concluded, you know, that they found that 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 in this that this pragmatic study using this PCORNet uh, did did basically find that there was no statistically significant difference between full dose aspirin and, and baby aspirin uh, in in uh, in any efficacy outcome. So I think we can say pretty conclusively now that 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 uh, full dose aspirin if you had a heart attack or you've had a stroke for long-term use doesn't seem to be any more beneficial than baby aspirin as i've said they didn't find any difference in, in safety as well i do some I have a bit of a question about that um but again i would argue that that the better part of valor if there's no eff a difference in efficacy is why not just take the baby aspirin and so i think uh this kind of you know even though it didn't show a difference in bleeding validated something i've been saying for ever since that that analysis of the cure study came out is that we're, there's really only two reasons to be on full dose aspirin and that's acute MI and acute and acute stroke and maybe a couple other very rare things um, but, but on the whole you know when when somebody's on long-term aspirin therapy either primary prevention or secondary prevention um, um, this study I think adds significantly to the literature that suggests that that, that baby aspirin is the way to go and in fact since this paper has been published um, I've read on several social media outlets that that there's kind of a call from major cardiologists to stop calling it baby aspirin. We don't give it to babies anymore, of course, because of Rye syndrome, and we just need to start calling it low dose aspirin. And 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 maybe that will map. You know, do, do people not take baby aspirin because they're afraid that baby aspirin isn't going to protect me because I'm a big tall guy? I'm, that, I've heard weirder things in my careers as a pharmacist, so certainly that's possible. But but if if, if I guess I guess the, the thought is that we can get away from saying baby aspirin. You're saying low dose aspirin is as good as high dose aspirin and you should be taking low-dose aspirin, that may get more people onto that side. So, so that's it for this week of, of, of Game Changers. Um, uh, thank, again, thanks for listening. If you, if, uh, be sure and head over to, uh, to subscribe and like to wherever you listen to your podcast. We really appreciate it. Again, head to our producer, CE Impact, and look at not only Game Changers, but, but uh, they have a wide variety of outstanding uh, uh, continuing education programs. They're all affordable. They're all high, high quality, and, and, you, and you should really have that as part of your portfolio when, when you're deciding how to do your CE for, for the year. So, so that's it. We will catch you next week. Uh, uh, thanks again for listening. And remember that time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thanks for listening in. Check out the CE for this podcast at ceimpact.com or download the Pharmacy Network app by searching CE Impact in your app store and join the Game Changers Podcast Academy. Happy learning. Happy learning.